0: are we live yet? All right, everyone, welcome to Revolutionary Health. I'm Charles Stevens, the founder and executive director of the counter Project, and I'm here with David Malbranch.
1: I am a physician, public health, official, and activist. That's what I'm going to be today. And a writer. And a writer. I do a lot of different things. My very you.
0: own France Fanon here. Mm-hmm. The the renegade scholar. I don't know who the fuck that is, but I'll go with Oh, that. David, stop acting like yeah, I no. I you. I know, don't. You, you know, you know uh, The Wretched of the Earth, the black nope. skin white man. I don't read. <laughs> you just read the girls, not books, <laughs> huh? Um, I was <laughs> going to say Paul Robeson. Oh, that's bad. That's a renaissance man. <laughs> David's playing. Or Kanye West. Not, I didn't just say we can't talk about Kanye today. Okay, that's the last time we're going to talk about Kanye. <laughs> okay. What are we talking about today? Today. Okay. As always, um, you know, we're here every Tuesday to talk about various health topics um, related to sexual health, emotional wellness, physical health, and it's also a discussion um, where you can ask questions. So, as always, please, in the comments, let us know what you think. Please, um, you know, please ask questions. Uh, offer commentary. We always enjoy your comments in our comment box, and uh, most importantly, please like this video if you're watching it on Facebook. Please like us on Facebook, like the video. If you're watching it on YouTube, please subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as liking on YouTube as well. Um, and if you really, if you're really into it, <laughs> please uh, join our email list at thecounternarrative.org. That's like the headquarters for our CMP tribe. All right, let's jump in. He, oh, and we should do a roll call too, actually. I see some folks are already joining us. Who do we have in the room? A little roll call. I see Daniel Driffin in there. Daniel Driffin is in the room. Hey Daniel Driffin. <laughs> All right. So last week, one of the questions that we got <laughs> related to anal health and pleasure is there, and okay, so for context, so last week, we spent some time talking about anal health, but we also spent some time talking about mythologies around anal sex and anal pleasure, as you know, many of us, uh, I guess, uh, without much uh, infrastructure around, like, sexual health, um, we have to learn in the streets, (laughs) essentially, so sometimes, some of the information is good, some of it's not always, uh, quite as good. Right. So to that end, there are often, I think, myths and stereotypes that we might receive about sexual health. And so we wanted to use um, the space last week to talk a bit about what are some of the the myths that we've heard about um, anal sex and anal health and so forth. So one of the questions we received is, um, is there a second and third hole?
1: Yeah, I think... Um... Whoever asked that last week, I think we were talking about douching. We were talking about if, yeah. asses, could, if asses could come. We were talking about a bunch of different stuff. And so uh, if someone's asking if there's a second or third hole, I think what that question is asking is whether there are, are they're referring to the sphincters or the kind of tight muscle contractions that are there. So there are technically, they're not two different holes, um, but there's two different sphincters, which are just kind of, tight um, muscle areas around the ass. One's the external sphincter and the other one is called the internal sphincter. Now, it's important to know the difference between the two because the internal sphincter is what's called an involuntary muscle. By involuntary, you mean you don't have control over it. So when you're about to take a shit and stuff starts coming down, that muscle just opens up by itself. And so you don't really have control over that. The external sphincter on the outside is the one that you actually can control. So when that internal sphincter opens up, say you're at the movies or in a car or on a plane and you feel that like you have to go to the bathroom and you feel it ready to come down, that's you clenching that external sphincter to prevent yourself from having an accident. So what happens is that when you have a bowel movement, it goes down, the internal sphincter automatically relaxes, allows waste material to go out, and then the external sphincter, when you're ready, you can evacuate everything. I didn't curse that much on that, so that was good. <laughs> I know I offend Charles um, sometimes with my, curs- <laughs> with my cursing. So, But, yeah, I think there's not like three or four holes in there, but there's two sphincters that you need to know about. And that's why also, too, if you're bottoming, it may be like when someone says, can I put the head in, and then they kind of slowly go in, and it seems like a little bit easier. And then all of a sudden they push in, and you're like, ow, fuck, that hurt." That's the internal sphincter because you don't have control of that. It's just a mm-hmm. tight muscle, and then when the dick goes through that, you're gonna feel some kind of way because you don't have control over that muscle. That's a little bit extra information, it but, was I, thought, a very very but I thought it was. But I thought it was helpful.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I think that. I mean, people might have said it or asked the question it was asked, but I think that right. there's a lot of there's so much we don't know about you know right. our bodies,
1: right. right? But there's only so, one yeah. like cavern, like the rectum goes into the sigmoid colon, like it's this kind of continuous hole as you as you would say it, but there's just just different muscles that kind of provide the uh, the entry and exit.
0: Daniel says, we're talking good tonight. They like it when you talk like that. <laughs> kind of doctorly, but ratchetly at the ratchet same time. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. right. Um, hey, Alvin. Alvin is with us. Um, hey, Alvin. Art Jackson is with us. Hey, Art. Hello, hello. Hello, all. And there's also still, I think, some discussion concern about prep and access to prep. It seems like there's a lot of energy around that still, and, and black gay men. I was actually thinking about that, and I appreciate it because uh, someone tagged us in a, a post about um, like why black gay men are not accessing prep, and again, it putting it on us, right? Like there's something right. wrong with us for not accessing prep, and there's usually right. no accountability for these healthcare institutions and right. companies that make it really, really hard right. to, to access PrEP, right? They create all these barriers and all these administrative administrative obstacles. Right. So, David, you just want to continue.
1: Yeah, that. I can actually add a little bit of that context. Last week, um, actually, at this time, I was in D.C. at the SYNC conference, uh, which was a conference um, about black, gay, um, transgender, uh, men and women and kind of sexual health and um, run by Marcus Stanley, who did a remarkable job. Um, Congrats, Marcus, and shout out to you. I did a presentation with Leo Moore, who's a physician out in Los Angeles, and Keith Green, who is about to get his PhD in Chicago in social work. And we were talking about um, kind of looking at black men in this whole HIV treatment cascade that we talk about, And Leo brought forth some good information from Los Angeles looking at black and Latino men and showing very vividly that there is a lot of interest or knowledge about PrEP among black and Latino gay men. But then there's a drop off to where people don't actually get it. And I think the assumption is always the time, well, if they're interested, why don't they just get it? And it's kind of like, well, you can't blame folks if they're interested in something, but they don't have access to it. Or even when they have access, they go to a provider. Um, And I mean, Johnny told a story before Mm. about what he went through. There are tons of stories where black and Latino men are actually going into spaces to get prep and asking for prep and providers are turning them down. And so that kind of stuff doesn't get in the literature because it doesn't pathologize. It's not as anti-black as folks want it to be in the major media. So unless you're blaming black men for their own lot then it doesn't make anyone happy. So
0: And we need to call it what it is. It's another form of violence. It is. And I think that it is we've come a long way in our current moment in understanding the ways that structural violence impact our lives, right. especially as it relates to the violence committed by the criminal justice system. So we have this there's been such an amazing analysis of understanding the ways that the criminal justice system is complicit in anti-blackness and 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 really um the structural violence that Animate so much of our lives, right. but we haven't quite. The analysis hasn't quite developed as much with the healthcare system, right. and the ways in which the healthcare system is also complicit and perpetuates um, so much of the, the 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 structural violence that we experience and face. Like I can't think of. The denying people health care because essentially that's what you're doing. You're erecting barriers when you're sustaining barriers to health care for people that need it. That's a
1: form of violence. And you have an access to do it. And your your analogy with the prison industrial complex is is really appropriate because there is what we call the HIV industrial complex, which is kind of like this whole you know money making industry Mm -hmm. between pharmaceutical companies. And let's be clear, I do I do presentations for for a pharmaceutical company, so I'm very clear about that. But I still can critique uh, corporations, pharmaceutical companies, kind of this whole industry where people are kind of brought in and black bodies, particularly living with HIV, are brought in to tell narratives Mm -hmm. that help bring people to the table. And people fly folks all around the country. They put them up at fancy hotel rooms. (laughs) They send them off to conferences to meet a whole lot of people. And this is a money-making industry because at the end of the day, they want you to take their product. They want you to buy their medication. The problem with that is that, a lot of us will buy into it and participate in it. But then at the end of the day, when you go to, you know, podunk doctor that doesn't know about it or has racist thoughts or is just anti-black from jump is going to look at you and say, Well, I'm not going to give you prep and I'm not going to take the extra effort. Whereas if you had Sally White Girl coming in and she said, Well, I want this kind of birth control, they'd say, Oh, well, let me look that up and educate myself about it so I can figure out how to give you what you need. And so when you look at things like that, it is kind of a form of violence, and it is something that's bad. And I think we have to just be more vigilant about getting more of us in these medical spaces mm-hmm. um, and then also recreating spaces that aren't so much focused on medicine, although a prescription does have to happen, mm-hmm. but ways of getting prep to our black, uh, not even just young black men, but black men on all generations and all parts of the age continuum so that they can have access to the same sexual
0: health options that everybody Absolutely. else does. I mean, why is it that Black folks are on the bottom of so many healthcare, like, uh, are health care, like, we look at Black yeah you know, and I think part of that has everything to do with the culture of health that currently exists. So, and it's not, I mean, so, so, okay, what's the response? Like, what do we do about it? I mean, I think ultimately there's this entire discourse around how Black gay men need to be resilient. Let's celebrate Black gay resilience. I've also talked about resilience, right. but I think in 2018, Looking at what we face now, we need to be concerned about resistance at this right. point. So it's not enough just to to talk about resilience. We got to talk about justice. And we then to talk about resistance. Yeah, and then also
1: resilience is kind of one of those things where it's a catch
0: twenty two. If you remember the
1: old fable of John Henry, mm-hmm. and the whole notion of John Henryism is that um, John Henry was a steel worker. It's a mythological figure, obviously. But when they invented those uh, trains or power drivers to kind of tunnel through the mm-hmm. mountains to build. Uh, um, the trains or the train tracks through some of the mountains, John Henry was kind of that person who was being like, I'm not going to let that machine take my job. So he battles this pile driver and races and tries to get them through the mountain. And the story goes, John Henry got through the mountain before the pile driver did before the machine did. But then after he got through the other end, he had a heart attack and died. Mm-hmm. And so what is the cost of resilience at this point? Like, if we're going to be so resilient, but then it's going to have an adverse impact
0: on our health, but we're still not going to hold these systems accountable, there's a problem there. So I think immediate things that need to happen is, one, having healthcare providers, having um, clinicians that are more culturally sensitive. And I think that has everything to do with not only knowing what words not to use to offend people, but it has – something to do with knowing knowing something about the communities that you're serving Mm -hmm. and also having a trauma informed care lens. Mm -hmm. Like if a black man goes into a healthcare setting, recognizing the ways that racism and homophobia impact our lives, you're coming in with some level of trauma and they need to be aware and sensitive to that. Yeah. And part of the the
1: phrase they use a lot is cultural humility instead of cultural competency and cultural humility just means, you know, shit, sit down, shut the fuck up and just be humble. Mm -hmm. and just realize that it's not all about you or your lens or your perspective. And that applies to all of us. So you can sit down with somebody and realize that person sitting across from you at the table um, has a whole context that you may not understand. And so your job as a medical provider, as a physician, a nurse practitioner, a phlebotomist, a physician assistant, whatever you are, is just to sit there and use your knowledge, your expertise to help them navigate that through that. You're not there to judge them. You're not there to impose your cultural attitudes or context on them you're there to help them um
0: facilitate good health and, and we like also can't assume that black gay healthcare professionals aren't also complicit in it at times too and yeah. i know it's, it cuts differently but i think we also need to have a real conversation about how we treat each other i mean right. how many of us have gone in to get an hiv test and have had a horrible, horrible experience. Right. How many of us have gone in right. to receive treatment to a to a, um, a, be a health uh health department or or organization and, and been treated completely poorly right. and not wanting to come back again because right. your human your you, your humanity has been completely um not considered in that process. Right. And I think that we absolutely need to exercise our collective power, right? And really begin to hold these institutions accountable because they can't exist without us. Amen. And at the same time, we also recognize that we have a right to healthcare. care right. um, So, the prop conversation needs to shift, obviously, from one of what are Black gay men doing wrong, to one of how can these institutions better care for outreach to and sustain us in in, in can and I think that's the bottom line there's
1: an interesting study and it
0: begs a question of how do
1: you control bias people assume that as black same gender loving men we're just we're bringing the baggage from societies racism homophobia whatever with us into the medical space and the problem is that we're not only bringing that baggage in but also we're experiencing the same traumas and microaggressions by the staff towards us when we get in. And so there was an interesting study, and this was about PrEP actually, where they um, inquired with medical students, and I'm assuming most of them were non-black or white, um, because that's the assumption, unless they say that they're mm-hmm. black. Um, and they basically looked at who would they prescribe PrEP to and what their assumptions were, and they presented them some case presentations with race-specific you know denominations, like this is a black <laughs> person, this is a white person. And what they found was that the medical students were much more likely to assume that their black patients were going to immediately have condomless sex if they prescribed PrEP to them. And then that led to, they they also demonstrated that they were less likely to prescribe PrEP to these black simulated patients because of that. Hmm. So there are these racially tinted lenses that people are coming in with and these assumptions. There were assumptions, there was, there's been work for a long period of time with HIV that um, medical providers felt that Black patients were less educated, less likely to adhere, um, less likely to follow up with care. So therefore, they wouldn't prescribe antiretrovirals to them. Mm -hmm. And then also um, the same thing went with, you know, when someone has a low T cell count and needs to get a medication to prevent an opportunistic infection, they found that medical providers were doing the same thing and were less likely to provide it to their black patients. So again, when we look at these things, it's not to say that we don't bear some responsibility in it, but when we, we have a narrative that strictly always says that we're to blame, blame. that's problematic. And if we, if we don't couple that with like, you have to take some accountability for some things, but you can't not address a system. But you know what that's about? Or say though. something a system. I think yeah.
0: as a cult this culture is so inclined to punish blackness. Absolutely. Like we it's like there's this perverse um persistent you know just constantly punishing blackness. It's like
1: torture porn almost it's crazy It is torture, right. you know, it is torture porn. Yeah. It's
0: like you know from looking at you know in jobs like the first week would be written up. Right. Looking at the criminal justice system the mass and mass right. incarceration, right. looking at the healthcare system, expulsions it's and like suspensions from schools, expulsions right. and suspensions from school. It's like in every factor of life, it's right. like there's this. Desire to punish blackness, right, right, which has everything to do with white supremacy. Right. So the so and I, and that's why I think these cultural competence trainings don't go far enough. They don't. And they we, don't. you know, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm for folks that are in the in the industry <laughs> that are making their coins do you know. better. No, well, <laughs> I will say that you know we 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 want to support you in 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 moving the needle. Right. Like, I think that the benefit of it, I mean, there is a conversation about cultural competence that I think isn't completely useless. Right. It's a good foundation. Right. But the question is, how do we go to the next level? How do we move the needle? And I think that has to do with really interrogating, you know, how people are perceiving black. Like you said, these assumptions that service providers and we can't assume and they're not, I'm sure they're not all white folks, service providers and, and what and how they perceive, you know, black gaming. I think that absolutely needs to be a focus. Yeah, and
1: I mean, if people who are watching this have ideas, comment, let us know what you think about this, what some possible solutions may be. Um, I think there are a lot of different solutions. There are a lot of different ways to skin this cat, Um, but a lot of it is going to have to be withholding the medical system responsible for kind of the anti-blackness it perpetuates on a daily basis it's the same thing with racism like racism is not black people's problems it's white people's problems so mm-hmm. if you just have black people saying it's racist it's racist nothing's going to happen until somebody white says wait a minute like this is not right the same thing with sexism like you're not going to have mm-hmm. if women are just saying that's sexist that's sexist or me too and no guys are actually acknowledging it why do women have to be the ones to have to bring this up? It's the guys who are being sexist. It's like, go get your family, go take care of them, go figure out what you need to do, but like figure the shit out and move on. I think that's what the medical community has to do is figure out why we're so goddamn racist when it comes to this, but then we sit in front of um, abstracts and presentations at conferences, and we want to demonize Black men when we're part of the problem ourselves. I oh, don't get so, me talking
0: about researchers. Right. Like, I'm not, I just I I'm not even going there. You know, I love you. Right. Right. I, I don't research you. anymore. <laughs> really? Not as much. We'll talk about that later. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> but it's like I've had some of the most. I mean, it's like you have to go to war with these researchers, and they'll, you know, they'll collect this data and and, and create these narratives about communities. And I'm like. No, your your dad is lying. You know, you're, you're this this is wrong. You so know, they pick, a lot well, of the they pick out you know, what they want. They pick out what they right. want. Um, and you know, the scientific establishment in general has like a long
1: you know absolutely. history of
0: like how they how they pathologize black people. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, that's the conversations we need to have. Mm-hmm. Um, Art Jackson wants to know what are your thoughts on undetectable equals untransmittable? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, we talk about this all the time, and actually I've had some good conversations with
1: people. Yeah. Um I think it's an interesting catchphrase. I think it's a it's a positive spin. Um, it also kind of speaks to people saying like, oh, we're not as bad as you think we are. You know, we're undetectable, we're untransmittable. But also, I think inadvertently or consciously, it's putting the onus on the person living with HIV to be the one responsible for the sexual health and the lack of transmission, where, as we know with a consensual relationship, it's for both. The other point that I would make with that, with undetectable equals untransmittable is that, um, and this is another thing where they want, I've heard this quote in this research done a while, they're like, we found out, and I haven't read the article yet, so I don't know, but they're saying like 150 days out of you know the 365 day year, black men have detectable viral loads and I'm th- sitting there thinking to myself, like how did you figure that out? But the point <laughs> is, is that similar to sexual fluidity about risk or condom use or lack of condom use or whatever, um, viral loads and being undetectable can be fluid. So what we want to talk about instead of just saying undetectable is untransmittable, saying something like sustained, sustaining being undetectable will equal not being transmissible. It's not to say there are these little blips that happen with people living with HIV. So like you could be undetectable and then even though you don't catch it, like all of a sudden you go from less than 20 copies to like 400 copies. It doesn't mean the medications aren't working. It doesn't mean that you're resistant or anything like that it's just a little blip and we've had trouble explaining that over the years as far as what exactly the, is the cause of that um but even with it being less than or close to 400 the question is whether that's going to be transmittable at all as well what we do know is that when you keep people un, undetectable like less than 20 or less than 40 then that's definitely untransmittable so in summary i would say i think it's a good catchphrase and it's good to put a positive spin on things but i think it does put the onus on the person living with hiv in the context of the relationship for preventing transmission um and it also you know can do a whole bunch of other bad things that i don't think it 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 really intends out to do
0: and daniel wants you to break down sustained
1: sustained means over thank you daniel um so by sustained we mean like when people have visits and so typically when someone is hiv positive and on medication initially when they start off on meds they'll follow up maybe two weeks or one month after check their viral load. Once they reach achieve undetectable status, most people will usually space um, meetings out from every three to four months. So usually after about a year of that, if someone sustains being, on, uh, being undetectable mm-hmm. during that time, you can actually stretch it out to six months to a year mm-hmm. um, to checking that out. Those are some of the current guidelines that um, have been recommended. Um, so sustained meetings like sequential, like, for six months, you're going to be undetectable at each point that you're seeing. So thank you, Daniel, for that. Because by sustained, it means just over a period of time and frequent visits to see the medical provider.
0: Thank you. Okay. Another topic I know we wanted to address was body image. Okay. You know, summer is almost here. It's getting warm. I'm sure a lot of us have, you know, are thinking a lot about body image. Taking clothes off. (laughs) Yeah, or putting them on, I guess, (laughs) however. Um, Well, for one thing, uh, I want to point folks to an amazing, amazing essay that Miles Johnson wrote called Big Blue and Wild, where he kind of explores and meditates on, you know, his ideas about, you know, his relationship to his body. So please check it out on thecounternative.org. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous essay. Yeah, David, do you have any... um, advice to people that might be grappling (laughs) with body image or thinking about I don't know um I
1: I I think when I think about body image I just think people should be comfortable and we were just having this conversation before we went live but Um, you know there'll be some people um you know like I weigh about 239 right now and that's that's the heaviest I've ever been. Oh, you're putting it up
0: there. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I am, <laughs> I but,
1: it. you know, and I like for my own, because I can I can feel it in kind of the way I navigate and kind mm-hmm. of what I do, but I still work out and everything. And I would like to get down, like, I like being thick. I like being a thick boy, but I, <laughs> I want to get down to, like, maybe 220, but, like, when people will see me, they'll say, oh, my God, you gained weight, and yeah. I, I'm sure that people have had side conversations about it or said mm-hmm. something not about it, but usually when people say it, they don't, it's not a compliment, but to me, Um, there are tons of thick people in my family, on both sides of my family. Mm -hmm. So I think thickness is a good thing. I think a big ass is a good thing. I think a (laughs) thick chest is a good thing. And so I think all these things need to be celebrated. So I kind of parse out the difference between um, body image and, like, how one sees themselves and how one looks, and then healthy. Like, I think one can be thick
0: and healthy at the same time. As as much as we we say that, I feel like there's this – like, I haven't we talked about that for, like, 30 years? Like,
1: We've been talking about it for a long time. And especially know, in, like, gay and same-gender loving enclaves, like, there's this whole status to, like, reach your six-pack abs, to do this, that, and the other.
0: Yeah, or... I mean, what do you think about it
1: as far as, like, body image? I'm tired of talking about body image. <laughs> this is the first time we've talked about revolutionary how
0: you can't be tired I of it. I know. It's... I feel like a lot of... stuff. I just... I think it's a part of... This way in which we surveil each other um, as black gay men, you know, we, not just, not only, I mean, men, right? Or maybe people, I don't know. Right, right, right. But I mean, because I live and work and engage with black gay men, that's what I know. So I can only speak from my experience. But this business where, you know, we shame people and just this acceptable, this norm around just being able to say these horrible things. Like, I know one of the things that I'm always really annoyed about is how people feel like they can comment, like this sort of freedom they can take on commenting on your body. Like, Mm -hmm. If you gain weight, they need to talk about it. If you lose right. weight, they need to talk about right. it. If you right. like you're getting, you know, and it's just like this constant sort of like su- scrutinization and surveillance of like right. your body. And it, it kind of does make you, I think, um, it's hard. I think it's really hard to sometimes be confident. So what do you do about that, right? Like, I don't think they're easy answers. Well, how do, how um, do people hold up like to the audience?
1: Like, how do you address something like that? Like, if you notice someone has lost a lot of weight. Yeah. or has gained a lot of weight. Yeah. How do you sensitively bring that up as like a concerned friend? Like maybe you feel someone mm. has gained too much weight or lost weight and you're concerned about their health. How talk about like how do you talk about it and not be offensive? Like you're obviously not going to, you know, cut on somebody in front of a whole group and say something in front of the whole group. So obviously you can bring somebody to the side and say, Hey, you know, mm. have you been losing weight or have you been trying to lose weight? And so, then someone could say like, yeah, I have been, or I've been trying to beef up. I've been trying to get thicker and this, that, and the other, or no, if you just ask the question, like, how is everything going? If someone says, you know, well, I've been depressed and I've been eating a little bit more. or I know I've kind of. But see, my
0: experience has been that people, if someone trusts you, if you build trust, like right? they'll tell you, like, you don't even have to ask. I just feel like you create a space where people, can have those conversations and more than likely it'll come up. You know, what's interesting and I hate to
1: do this because it's, it's kind of off the topic of sure. body image a little bit, but I was having a good conversation with someone the other day about how do we do in relationships, like supposing you're good friends with somebody mm-hmm. and your friend was dating somebody for like a couple of years or something, and then they broke up. Mm. And it's a few years later. And I was having a conversation with somebody that said to me, well, Hey, um, if my friend sleeps with one of my exes, like it's a done deal. It's a wrap on our friendship because that's a barrier. That's, that's a line that you don't cross. That's a boundary that you mm-hmm. don't cross. And I don't care if
0: what is that? Is that like the bro code
1: or something. Is that I don't, anything? I don't know what it is, but some people feel that way. And so what I was saying, like you reminded me when you said, well, I don't feel it's something to need to be asked. Cause I said to the guy, I said, well, don't you think that friends have to have these boundaries sometimes? Don't you think that people have to say at some time like, Hey, would you be upset if I messed around with so-and-so? Because you have to feel that out. You can't assume because we all have different takes on it. Like, I know people that are like, well, shit. I oh, once- can't go by that. No, not- no, but some people, Some people will say, look. They'll
0: shit, say it's okay, but they, they don't
1: mean it. This is true. So some people will say, well, I'm not going to mess around with somebody. I would never mess around with someone's ex. And the other person says, well, if they broke up with them, that could be my soulmate. So I don't know. So, But you're going on assumptions based on how you would do. So I'm thinking... Some people think it's a good idea to actually ask. And if you assume, well, we're just good friends, does that really need to be spoken? Or does that really need to be asked? In some cases, I would say, yeah, it does. So I, I say that to say, like, when you're saying, well, the person should tell you if you're that close. Um, but I'm not some no, that I you
0: create a space, it will come up. It'll like, come up, right. There'll be, there'll, be, there'll be an opening. So but I don't I'm just saying sometimes like, they may not. Like, or someone or it, may it, not. It, it, you, it, it, I, I, I'm 100% sure. Okay, I just want to make sure. <laughs> so Alfonso says, I'm conscious about my body image because I'm public about my status. If I lose too much weight, I don't want people to be scared. Wow. Right. Thank you for sharing that, Alfonso. I mean, and talk about, yeah, and in, in, in our community, it comes up, like, people whisper. Right. You know, there's, there's comments. Right. I had, um, a, I had
1: a friend who had tested positive, and he said that before he tested positive, he was trying to lose all this weight. Yeah. And then once he tested positive, he was like, "Ooh, maybe I don't need to lose that weight anymore because people are going to know of what happened. So I think you have to throw that variable in there because that actually influences body image. And I've seen a lot of people who have tested positive and then go on like a really extreme health kick, like all of a sudden they're at the gym every day. And I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, people may realize like, hey, I'm mortal. You know, this is I've I've contracted this virus and now I just have to pay attention to my body a little bit better so people become very health conscious um afterwards so Mm -hmm. it just depends
0: yeah thank you for that um Lee says I'm I'm I so worry about body image as well but I'm curious as I am approaching my best life do I care how it is um what's your best
1: life what's that mean is that a certain age
0: I think it's something we all strive for, right? To the best be, life. Yeah, be I didn't know best. what they were saying. Like, I, as
1: I as I <laughs> reach my best life, like whether there's kind of like a, a point point, like I'm reaching forty or
0: fifty or thirty or whatever, I can. I mean, even for me, like when I was twenty one years old, and I had like you know, and I was like probably skinniest I've ever been in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, like when I was like thirty one inch waist or whatever. Uh-huh. Like, I remember. I thought I was so fat that. then. You know what I mean? Like, I did like, fat back then. Oh god, yes. You know. <laughs> So it's all relative. It's you know now that I'm significantly <laughs> bigger than that. <laughs> I mean ultimately it's like or do you have the experience you look, like I mean I look back at old pictures of myself and I'm like oh my god I was so cute. You know but then I was like I didn't think that then. So mm-hmm. I mean and I think that's something that a lot of us go through because you know the the <sighs> ending internalized homophobia and really internalized oppression does not end just because you can accept that you're gay. Right. It doesn't end when you become a gay actor. whatever. Like, you could be the biggest activist. you come activist. out of the closet. You come out of the closet, like, right. whatever. It doesn't, like, the, you know, undoing, self-loathing, and and the stuff that's um that we carry with us, it's, like, a constant process. And I really do believe that. And, I you know, I get it. Like, there's always, like, you know, I'm losing weight for my health. I, I totally support that. I totally affirm that. Right. But I guess what I'm more concerned about is, like, how you feel about yourself, how you feel about your body. Um, And I think that is black game. You know, and it's, oh, my God, so this brings me back to, you know, one of my favorite novels, Beloved by Toni Morrison, Mm -hmm. the amazing Baby Sucks um, uh, sermon in the novel. Y'all are familiar with Beloved, y'all know I'm talking about. Um, But just this thing about, like, love yourself, because they don't, they don't, (laughs) they hate your flesh, so love your flesh, right? Right. Right. Um, And I try to carry that. Um, Lots of comments. Um... Art wants to know how can we talk about aging in our community in a better way? we got to talk about aging. That's such an important issue to talk that's a about. Great, that's mm-hmm. a great point. Maybe for Art. next week.
1: <laughs> yeah, actually, I think that would be a good topic for next, next week because yeah. even if we talk about, like for next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about colonoscopy and colonoscopy screening. Dave is very
0: excited about this topic. So I'm, I'm getting a, little... a colonoscopy Yay, in about a
1: week and a half. Um, as should as, I, should as, I go too? <laughs> n- no. Uh, <laughs>
0: Maybe well, we have to I check your risk back. Should I get one? Yeah. we got
1: to see. Um, yeah. So I'm doing that. So I want to talk about colonoscopies and some of these kind of screening things that we should be getting as black gay men, um, especially during the age continuum. But I think aging is such a great topic to discuss yeah. along with body image because the two go hand in hand. Mm. Because as you get older, your metabolism slows, your energy slows down, and we all tend to gain weight. Like there are certain people that defy that. Like I have a friend I'm gonna go shout David, him out you have right a lot now. Of friends. I do have a lot of friends. This is a good friend of mine who lives here in Atlanta, and he will always weigh. He's like 51, maybe 52. He will always weigh like 120 pounds, okay. and he's always like that. He can always wear a little cinch, little um, speedo when we go to the beach and stuff. And so, and he never, he never gains weight like that. And I think that's kind of an anomaly. But I think there are a lot of people. You know, when we talk about age, we talk about ageism, and that's one of the things. Like I told you before, I wanted to have Javante. Um, come on or we can bring mm-hmm. Javante on because that's one of his areas of um, expertise and research. And Javante Williams in uh, Philadelphia at Widener University. Yeah. Um, he's one of the research scientists over there, but I think he he really enjoys that topic and is researching it specifically with black gay men, which doesn't happen. People talk about aging with HIV, people talk about aging with gay men in general, people talk about aging in general, but his specific focus has been aging in black it's gay a, men, incredible. which
0: I think is, is is a phenomenal topic. So stay tuned, Art. We'll um we'll see what we can do about that. And also, what are some of your advice recommendations about aging? Like, you know what what have you learned, and you know what are some of the 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 lessons that have that you um manifested in your journey i mean mm-hmm. i think that we don't i don't know if we have a lot of great intergenerational spaces for black gay men i feel like we're always very separated right across age and so the the opportunity to be able to share wisdom across cross generationally i think is sometimes lost so hopefully with this space we can you know create a space where we can like share lessons and share wisdom like you know what are some of the lessons you learned about being healthy as you've gotten older some of the lessons you've learned about relationships mm-hmm. and friendships and finances and, and all these kinds of things so please please share in the comments
1: yeah speaking of um, which i had um i showed my nephew uh Jerelle. uh mm-hmm. we watched rent um i have on the movie yeah and uh, not the movie i have actually on apple or on my itunes account on apple tv i have the last broadway show for rent And so he, I had him watch the Broadway show, and it was interesting, like, he was so into it. And Jarell's 26 years old, going on 27. And, like, Hmm. he didn't understand the context of it. He didn't understand that Jonathan Larson... It's a very Generation X kind of thing. Yeah, the play, like, Hmm. the playwright had died the The night night before. Right, and so it was just, like... One of those things, he didn't understand that context, but like there were tears in his eyes during a certain point. Like really? he, he identified with certain characters, like he really went in on certain stories. He was like, mm-hmm. it kind of lost me in some areas, but it was just interesting to see the intergenerational wow. play
0: with that. Um, I had to explain to someone, uh, not explain, what's a nicer way. I had a great conversation with someone about <laughs> Angels in America. <laughs> Because right. they were like cussing out, it's like this is stupid, Angel, and I'm like, no, this is this is why this this play is 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 powerful and important. Right. Like Rent and Angels in America, right. before it hits home, is a a black play that deals with the impact of HIV in our communities that came out in the early '90s. It's right. not produced as much as Rent and Angels in America, but it's also an important work. Yeah. Um, Mike Ramsey says people should concentrate on being healthy versus anything else. Your body has ways of telling you if you are too heavy or too thin. Not eating enough joint aches fatigue lethargy and also people need to start planning for when they get older keep their bodies healthy that. so that transition is easier absolutely i would agree absolutely. with that kudos michael yeah that's kudos, a great Mike. point so thank y'all for watching this evening that um, went by quickly not, it Went by real quickly okay <laughs> we love y'all we love y'all so much again please if you're watching this on youtube please subscribe to our youtube channel if you're watching this on facebook please like us on facebook and like this video And um, also join our email list at thecounternarrative.org. But again, thank you so much, CMP Tribe, and we'll be back next week.
1: Deuces.